Amen. You may be seated. We'll be looking at three different passages this morning on the Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. It's the first time we've taken an opportunity to acknowledge and recognize this day. I typically don't don't preach topical sermons, um, but today is the 50th anniversary of Roe v. Wade. On this day, 50 years ago, the Supreme Court um, legalized abortion. You can see there in your um, in the announcements. They, uh, on January 22, 1973, the Supreme Court of the United States issued its ruling on Roe v. Wade legalizing abortion across the nation. Since then, more than 60 million legal abortions have occurred. So this year, we celebrate the overturning of that ruling and pray for an end to the ongoing injustice of abortion. So more than 60 million abortions since 1973. That's just the legal reported abortions. Um, that needs some perspective sometimes, a number like that. It's just so astronomical, it doesn't really mean a whole lot. You know, it's sort of like talking about the, the debt in our nation. And what does that mean? It's, it, it, it's, it's such a high number, but it's the equivalent of the populations of California, Oregon, Washington, Arizona, and Nevada combined. So imagine every life disappearing in those states, 19% of our nation. So it's an important thing to recognize, and, and we, we do want to celebrate. I mean, the, it, that, that this last year, there was an overturning of Roe v. Wade, right? And we can, we can acknowledge that and celebrate it anytime um, unjust laws are overturned, we rejoice. Right? And we, we give God praise. But the battle's not done. In fact, uh, according to the early estimates, something like about 10% of abortions, those who want an abortion are, are uh, or there's, I should say it like this, there's 10% fewer abortions than they would have estimated prior to over, Roe v. Wade being overturned. So just 10% less. That means if you want an abortion, there's means to get it still. Um, you just cross state lines, you can get the help you need, you can get the finances. And so, unfortunately, just overturning the law hasn't overturned the hearts of the nation, right? It's a moral issue. It's a moral battle. And that battle is still waging. And so it's not a time to go silent as a church. At the same time, it's not, it's not even really a time to, to, to gloat, Right? There, it's, it's not as if we've, got, we've, we've been victorious and now we can just, just rest in that. Right? We want to see people's hearts change. We want to not just see unjust laws overturned, but we want to see those who are pro-choice becoming pro-life. Those who would support the culture of death uh, to begin to s- promote life and support life in every stage. And so we can think about that from a scientific perspective. We can make a scientific case for that. We can make a philosophical case for the pro-life position, and people have, and it's good that they're doing that. This morning, though, we want to make a biblical case for life, 
And that's what we want to discuss. It's unfortunate that something in like seven out of 10 of those who receive abortions, women who receive abortions, seven out of 10 of them identify as Christian. Now, statistics, it's, it's hard to verify and you know what, how many of those people that were questioned are regular attenders or just identifying as, as Christian because their parents tell them so, or you know, um, I, I believe it's, it's less than half of them were regularly attending church but still, it's a significant number of, of people who were in church. Something like a third of them were regularly going to church um, a couple times a month at least. And they're, they're identifying as Christians. So what, what does that tell me? Well, it means that the Christian church has probably not adequately equipped our children to value life more than their reputation. I would say that's not only for the woman but for the man as well. Right? It would be an embarrassing thing to have an unplanned pregnancy in the church where you know that it's wrong, where people are gonna frown upon that and look differently upon you. And so instead of going through that embarrassment, they'd rather end the life, which is a blessing from the Lord. And that's, that's, that's a hard balance to, to, to make, but I think the fact that people would rather end the life of their unborn child than suffer the humiliation of an unplanned pregnancy is partly due to the fault of the church not speaking to the issue in a very clear and direct and biblical manner. And so when we rightly understand the value of life, we will truly praise the giver of life. So that's what I want us to consider this morning. Before we look at Psalm 139, verses 13 through 16, let's ask the Lord for his help and understanding. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you that your word is clear on this matter. It's, it's really not a, a confusing topic for the authors of scripture, ultimately being inspired by your Holy Spirit, given divine words to share. And, and yet, as Christians, it seems to be a topic that is divisive and confusing. Lord, may, may we be clear this morning about this. If there is anyone here who's, who's on the fence about this topic or anyone here who might face a dilemma in the future where they would have to face embarrassment and face the embarrassment of their own uh, sin of, of sex outside of marriage, Lord, to, to face that sin with repentance rather than compounding it with the sin of abortion. Lord, we pray that, that those minds and hearts might be changed this morning. And if there's a, someone who's wondering and thinking about how they might be a part of this effort as in, in the nation and within our state specifically, within our region, our city, Lord, where abortions are happening regularly, we pray that their hearts would be stirred to get involved, to volunteer. Lord, we know that the impact can be tremendous. Lord, with even just one, one life being changed, the compounding effect of that. Lord, for your glory, we, we want you to do a work this morning. And so use your word to soften our hearts, to enlighten our minds, give us eyes to see and ears to hear the truth. And Lord, transform us for your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.
Amen. So read with me Psalm 139, verses 13 through 16. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. Amen. This is God's holy word. The first thing we see here in verse 13 is that you formed my, my inward parts. That word formed or made, created, comes from um, a word that is typically translated in the Hebrew as by. Like in English, when it's translated into English, it's, it's by or acquire. That's what the, the word in, implies or it indicates that, you're, that, that you're, there's an ownership that's being transferred here. So in God forming... In God creating, he is owning his creation. Right? We belong to him because he formed us. And so only God can give life. Only he has the right to take life. Job speaks of the value of his own servants based upon the fact that the same God made them both in the womb. How can he mistreat his servants when they were also made by the same God in their mother's womb? They have equal value before God to whom we all owe our existence. And so in these verses, there's just three things. We're going to work through these texts fairly quickly so we can make our way um, through it all. But David specifically credits God with, with three things. He says here, unformed substance. There in verse 16, your eyes saw my unformed substance. That's typically acknowledged as, as being a reference to the embryo. In the very beginning, just this this formless, shapeless thing that's beginning to form. Uh, there's also an acknowledgement in verse 15. My frame was not hidden from you. This is the skeletal system, uh, often translated bone in Hebrew. And then thirdly, the inward parts, as we just read in verse 13. You formed my inward parts, referring to internal organs, um, tissue, muscle, your inward parts. So 3,000 years ago, David knew that through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, what science now confirms through medical technology and biologists are nearly unanimous on this topic. Dr. Steve Jacobs recently surveyed 5,577 professors in biology departments over, uh, across 1,000 institutions around the world. 96% of them affirmed the view that human life begins at fertilization. It's, it's just not a question for them. That's when a distinct human being begins to form at fertilization. And so I just want us to take a moment to marvel at that miracle, the miracle of life and the miracle that's taking place within the womb. And, and, and many of you know this or you've, you've considered it, but, th but just take some time here to to acknowledge what God is doing within the womb as he's forming us. Within 24 hours, the zygote divides and multiplies. And then it continues to do so every 12 to 15 hours. 
So a single cell begins to divide and multiply, and then it just continues to do that a couple times a day. By week two, there's three layers that can be differentiated. There's an, an inner layer that where, where breathing and digestive organs are beginning to form. There's middle, a middle layer that involves bones, muscles, and organs. And then there's an outside layer of skin and nerves. By week two, by 22 days, the heart starts beating. And that's, that's before most women know they're pregnant. Individual cells begin to contract. Carrie was just telling me this morning that people are starting to suggest that that's not really a heartbeat. Cells are just contracting. They're beginning to synchronize in their contractions and they're beginning to, to pump blood that's completely separate from the mother's blood, but it's not a heart. I mean, it's just, it's insane. The lies that can be told about what's taking place. The heart develops at one million cells per second with blood totally separate from the mother's. That's miraculous. 22 days. 32 days, they, the, in, the child begins to develop arms and hands. At 40 days, brain waves are measurable. 42 days, a vertebrae begins to form. By week eight, all major organs are working and the baby can feel. Most abortions take place around this stage. Baby can already feel what's taking place, especially the surgical abortions are taking place after this. It's simply denial to suggest that the baby doesn't know what's taking place or doesn't feel anything. They have all their major organs working and they can feel. In fact, there's evidence as surgeons are doing operations within the womb and they've used their needle to anesthetize the, the baby, that there's reactions to that. Baby pulls away. By week 11, you can see smiles and frowns. By week 13, the child's sensitive to light and sound. It begins to respond to music and noises and the mother's voice. By week 17, there's rapid eye movement, which indicates that that child is dreaming. It's already got experiences. It's already beginning to, to think. And then at full term, there are 60,000 miles of vessels working to bring nutrients in and dispose of waste. 60,000 miles. This is incredible. And so David models, when we hear of that, when we think about our own life, our own development, David models the only appropriate response. When he's saying, verse 14, I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made to give God praise. When we wonder at the intricate design of humanity, we ought to acknowledge the designer. Despite all of the scientific advancements that have given us a peek into the process of human development, there still remains mysteries. We can see what's happening, but how do we explain it? How do we understand it apart from God? 
All we can do is praise him that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. It's, it's easy, though, to praise God in this context for these things, to praise God in church. But will you praise him when you're with family and friends and neighbors? Maybe those who you know prioritize choice over life. When the lives of unborn children are devalued, will you stand up for biblical truth? When these issues are on the ballot, will you be sure to vote and tell others about it? Will you volunteer at the Pregnancy Care Center? If you're interested, there's information for that that we have for you. Will you go with Matt and pray on the sidewalk at Planned Parenthood? It's just down the street where these lives are being taken. We can be a part of praying and speaking and talking about these issues and we can't just do it here in the confines of the church we need to take this view with us your prayers your voices your gifts are needed and they make a difference we were just talking in sunday school tom was talking about how one sermon convinced him to change from pro-choice to pro-life and because of that he volunteered he spends time he has spent time in the past volunteering at the pregnancy care center and you can think about potential lives that he has changed through counseling. The domino effect of, of changing one life is incredible. And you might spend a year doing the work and not, not see that, the fruit of that. But just changing one woman's decision to give one more child an opportunity to live can, can change many lives down the line. So... Not only does God form us with intricate beauty, but he gave humans an inherent value that is unique among creatures. And for that, I want us to turn to the beginning, Genesis 1, 26 and 28. You guys know this verse, but it's an important factor in the biblical case for the value of life. Genesis 1, 26 to 28. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female. He created them and God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Notice the chiasm there. If you're familiar with the way, and we talked about this before, the way uh, Hebrew authors would distinguish from passages, they would kind of bracket their themes. And so you have the same topic of this dominion over the fish of the sea in verse 26 and then reiterated again at the end in verse 28. And you have verse 27 being the central truth that God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. And so that's the, the highlight from that passage is that we are made in God's image. The inherent value of all human life is based upon this unique privilege of being made in the image of God. From a Christian worldview, this is the essential feature of humanity. And the image of God gives us an innate recognition of the preference that's given to man over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over the beasts of the earth and everything that creeps along the ground. The value of humans is not what they're capable of doing, but who they are 
and what they represent under God. They have equal worth and in intrinsic dignity. From a biblical perspective, a human is able to physic uh, a human who is able to physically accomplish more does not have greater value under God. And that intrinsic dignity based upon their bearing the image of God is why murder is forbidden. Right? The, the life of every human being is far more precious than the life of any animal. However, when someone unjustly takes the life of another, they're revealing in that, that their own disregard for that fundamental value. And so due to their egregious trespass of God's moral law, they forfeit their own right to life. If you value life at such a low level, you forfeit that right so that you would wipe it out, that you would snuff it out. Genesis 9, 6 says, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And so it's restated in the sixth commandment, you shall not murder. Multiple passages speak of the evil of shedding innocent blood. So certainly these passages would apply to abortion. An attack upon someone who is made in the image of God is an attack upon God. Princeton professor Peter Singer makes a, the secular utilitarian argument that the life of an adult pig deserves protection more than that of a newborn human baby. Yeah, he's, I mean, this is not just abortion. He's talking about infanticide. Of a newborn human baby. He goes on to say, the parents should be free to kill their young children already born if they deem them unacceptably disabled. And so what determines their value? Their function, their, their ability to do something, to contribute. If they're dependent, then, then the, those who they're dependent upon have the right to make the choice for them, to end their life. Singer readily admits that life begins at conception. Or he'll, he'll concede possibly 14 days later, but... He doesn't really have a problem with conceding that human life begins at conception or fertilization. But he says that he doesn't think the fact that an embryo is a living human being is sufficient to show that it's wrong to kill it. Tom was talking about that in Sunday school, just this culture of death, this devaluing of life. And while Seeger's argument overall has not successfully won over the hearts of most Americans, there is a growing sense that abortion for any reason should be celebrated. Right, when a woman chooses her education or career over the life of her child, she is held up as an example for young women across America. She's praised. She's a role model. Secular academics, Hollywood celebrities, they've flipped the Christian worldview on its head. Right? They value animals more than they value humans. And increasingly, they aren't ashamed to admit that abortion destroys life, just like Peter Singer would admit. And they've exchanged the glory of the immortal God for every kind of sinful alternative imaginable. They're inventing ways to be evil, consistent with Romans chapter 1. 
And as they teach others to do the same, they are desensitizing us to a culture of death. But I do believe there's hope for a, a pro-life sentiment to be recovered, to be restored. In 1999, there was a 21-week-old 20 fetus, Samuel Armas. Um, he was operated on in the womb at 21 weeks for spina bifida. Chuck Colson describes it as the surgeon was closing the womb, a miracle happened. Baby Samuel pushed his hand out of the womb and grabbed the surgeon's finger. Some of you have probably seen that picture. Uh, it, it won awards that year for science and technology. Photographer Michael Clancy caught the astonishing act on film, and in that instant, Clancy went from being pro-choice to being pro-life. As he put it, I was totally shocked for two hours after the surgery. I know abortion is wrong now. It's absolutely wrong. So we ought to pray. We ought to ex expect hearts to be softened to this truth as pictures like that are shared. I mean, I've, I've heard and with, with pictures in hand, people walking into Planned Parenthood telling me that the pictures I have are fake. They, they just deny it. They refuse to accept the fact that what, what they're about to do is to end a human life. And so regardless of what Peter Singer says, it doesn't matter if it's a human life and what other people, celebrities, Hollywood, they're trying to portray that culture of death as being acceptable and even praiseworthy. We recognize that innately there, are, there is an instinctual disgust with that idea of ending human life, of murdering an innocent human life. It's a reality that everyone intuitively knows, Romans 2, 14 and 15. Give us that, that definition, that understanding of natural law that everyone's born with, but they're now constantly suppressing that in unrighteousness, according to the previous chapter, Romans 1, 18. And so we ought to recognize that changing minds on this issue will actually result in saving lives. And it's possible to refer to their emotional and intuitive reaction to the truth. Turning abortion-minded women away from Planned Parenthood fulfills Proverbs 24, 11 to 12. Rescue those who are being taken away to death. Hold back those who are stumbling to the slaughter. If you say, behold, we didn't know this, does not he who weighs the heart perceive it? Does not he who keeps watch over your soul know it? And will he not repay man according to his works? And those of us who, who still adhere to a, a Christian value for human life must have the dignity to challenge those who seek to destroy that life and that dignity. John Enzer gives the following example. In, in Saboni, Cuba, five women, of whom one is a doctor, banded together to end abortion in their small town. They call themselves Soplo de Vida, breath of life. They rush to every home where there is a pregnancy-related crisis. They use a handheld ultrasound and an iPad, and they let the whole family see this picture of the, of the womb. They give them a window to the womb, and they promise to help them. In 2017, the local hospital had recorded 28 abortions. The following year after this ministry began, they recorded three. 
And think about the ramifications of each one of those lives that was saved will have on future generations in that small town who will then move on to other small towns and have an impact there. So God made us in the womb. God made us in his image. And finally, God made us for his glory. Look at Luke chapter 1. Now, this is a a longer passage. We're not going to read the whole thing. But Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 44. I just want to point out a few important details. This is about the the birth of Jesus as it's being foretold and, and really just the conception of Jesus in the womb of Mary and her interaction with Elizabeth who was carrying John the Baptist in her womb. Verse 31 says, Behold, you will conceive. This is the the words of Gabriel, the angel Gabriel, to Mary. Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Jesus was a a human son from his conception. Now, admittedly, Mary experienced a a -a one-of-a-kind, a miraculous conception from the Holy Spirit. Verse 35, And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Look at verse 36. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who is called barren. So she was old in, at her, in her old age and barren. And she conceives also a son. Anytime you find this language of conceiving in scripture, it's a human I mean, of a human conceiving, it's a human conceiving a human being. It's remarkable, isn't it? They don't conceive blobs of tissue or clumps of cells. They conceive sons and daughters. They have a moral responsibility to care for that child. Verse 39, jump down to that. It says, in those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah, And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. Mary went with haste to visit Elizabeth. So she has just conceived. And she goes with haste to Jerusalem. It was probably less than two weeks from her own conception. And it's roughly a 100-mile journey. It could have been done in five to six days. Even giving her a couple of days before leaving, a couple days after arriving, I mean, or, or a couple of extra days on the journey, however you, you measure it, she's within two weeks of her conception. And she arrives at Zechariah's home and greet, is greeting Elizabeth, who is carrying John the Baptist, and we know she is a little past six months. And she was in her sixth month, we said, at the beginning of the, the passage, um, She kept herself hidden for for, uh, five months in verse 24. And then in the sixth month, you have Gabriel visiting Mary. So this is all from the perspective of Elizabeth's pregnancy. Now, 
what happens when John, when John the Baptist hears the greeting of Mary. It says that he leaps in Elizabeth's womb, verse 41. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. So a six-month-old fetus is worshiping a two-week-old fetus that at this point is smaller than a period in your Bible. Think about that. The result is that Elizabeth blesses her younger cousin Mary in verses 41 through 45. So not only is John a, a human child within the womb, but he's actually accomplishing what every human is created for, to give glory to God. His mother says that he leaped for joy. In verse 44, For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. His chief end, John's chief end, was to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And we know that he was accomplishing that at least three months before he was even born. The angel Gabriel told Zechariah that his son John would make ready for a Lord, a people prepared. So his role was to lead people to repent and prepare to follow Jesus. And we're all called to give glory to God. 1 Corinthians 10.31, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Romans 11.26, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. And so when we rightly understand the value of life, we will truly praise the giver of life at whatever age. God enables that. And so we should prioritize this important subject and the, the value of life, push back against the culture of death. Let, let us unashamedly celebrate the beauty of life at all stages of development from conception to birth and tell others about it. Let us proclaim the unique value inherent in all humans who are made in the image of God. And let us seek to glorify the giver of life by doing whatever we can to promote life among our family, friends, and neighbors. And let us seek to, to change one life at a time. And trust God for the impact that that might have. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this what this day represents, 50 years of legalized abortion in this nation. Lord, we do celebrate the overturning of that and the Supreme Court decision last year to overturn that, but we recognize that this battle is far from over. And as believers, we want to push back against the culture of death. We want to promote life at every stage. We want to have an impact upon our neighbors' lives, our family members, our friends. Lord, help us to celebrate life, even when it's the result of, of sinful uh, premarital actions, premarital sex. Lord, we want to celebrate the life and the blessing of life, regardless. We can condemn the sin and still 
praise you for the gift of life. And so, Lord, we ask that you would work in our hearts and give us guidance and direction that on this topic we might think of ways that we can be an impact in this community, in this church. Lord, just down the street or at the Pregnancy Care Center, Lord, use, use us, use our time, our resources, our efforts for your kingdom purposes. And may we continue to see a decline in this unjust practice or this it's not there's not much that gets darker than this topic it's difficult to consider and talk about and yet we can't be silent about it because we know that in the academy we know that in Hollywood we know that in the media, we are hearing the other side far more often. And choice has been prioritized over life for far too long. So Lord, use us. Use our voices. And ultimately help us to point them to you. The chief end to glorify you. Lord, we know our, our dependence is upon you and the hope of the gospel. Lord, we don't just leave people feeling the guilt and the shame, as, as Matt said in Sunday school. We don't just leave them there. We share with them the hope of Christ, who came to die in our place, to take our guilt and our shame, even, even, even these sins. Took them upon himself and And he puts them to death on the cross. Lord, may that be our hope. May that be the message that we share. And may lives be saved. For your glory we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I invite you to stand as we sing our psalm of response. Um, You'll need your Trinity Psalter hymnal instead of the insert because we're going to sing verses 1 through 3 and then we're going to jump down to verse 7. So sorry for that change, but if you have your Trinity Psalter hymnal, you can follow along with us and we'll sing 1 through 3 and then verse 7. We're singing Psalm number 10.